All right, well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to uh, a couple places. We're actually going to be in John 11 some, but we're also going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we just read from. That will be the, uh, where we'll get to here in a minute. How many of you work in an office or a cubicle or have something like that where, where, where you work? Hands. Okay. How many of you have one at home, like a home office or something? Okay, so you know most, like typically in an office, you have different things that you would decorate on your shelves or put on your shelves that are kind of mementos or things that remind you of things. A lot of times you'll have pictures of your family and you'll have, you know, different, different things that you've done. And uh, I'm the same way in my office over there, which is at that house that is, for those of you who guess, that's not a parsonage. Those are, that's our church office. It's also where the food pantries. Uh, house, no one's a food pantry, but in my office over there, um, I've got shelves, and on those shelves, I've got different mementos, all kinds of different ones, and I brought a couple today that I thought I would show you, and so the first one is Buzz, right? So I, this is my alma mater. I went to Georgia Tech. That's where I graduated, and so, and so I know i got some UGA friends. Sorry, yes, go Jackets, but this is my, this is my Buzz, so it was a good time, special time in my life, and so I have that up there as a, as a memento. I also have a nameplate, all right? And I got this when I took, uh, coming out of tech, when I graduated, I took a job with a company called Lithonia Lighting in Conyers, Georgia, and uh, they gave me a nameplate. It was like this fast-track management trainee program before I felt called into the ministry, so they gave me a nameplate. And so, you know, when I left, I, I kept that. And so if I've got these two things, and they, they kind of, you know, remind me a little bit of my past. But then I also have this, don't freak out. Okay, now this is not real, this is resin, and John, being the good friend that he is, gave this to me when I turned 40. <laughs> but in all seriousness, like, it, it is something that I had talked about wanting. If you go back in church history and you look at different pastors or theologians and you look at paintings of them, there's always a skull in the paintings. And the reason is because... It's a constant reminder of my future. Like if, those, if Buzz and this, and this nameplate, you know, remind me of my past, this reminds me of what's coming for me and teaches me to number my days, teaches me to, you know, know how short life is and to contemplate the fact that I'm going to be here maybe 70, maybe 80 years. That's it. Maybe 41. We don't know. We don't know how those things are going to roll out. And it's not something that's morbid. It's not something that's to be scary. It's just something to remind. Because a lot of times, like today, we, we push death out of our minds. We feel like we can avoid it. When it is inevitable. Like society has shifted. Culturally, culture has, has shifted. Like, obviously, in an, in an agrarian society, death's around you everywhere, right? Farm life, you're, you're just going to... It's around you everywhere. But even just in the church, you see you had to walk through a cemetery to get to the church. You walk past people who maybe are family members. 
you're constantly reminded of death. It's something that's in the forefront of your mind. If we go even further back to the early church, they met a lot of times in catacombs because that's the only place they could meet to not be persecuted. They could hide in the catacombs. And then later, cathedrals were built on top of catacombs or on top of different people's tombs. And so whether you're walking to church or just on the farm or just, you know, what, what, whatever it might be, you walk past all these graves, everything, you, you were reminded of death. You were reminded of your mortality. That you, that I, that we, we are going to die. Truly, we are. But a lot of times, like I said, today we try to push that out of our minds. We will largely have tried to remove death from our thought processes. Un- unless we make it really hyperbolic and it's zombie apocalypse or it's Halloween. And so what winds up happening there is we, we couple death in with goblins and ghosts. And it's so outlandish, it's so far out there that we almost put death together with those things. And it too is make-believe. And so you think about it, like cemeteries are elsewhere, mausoleums are elsewhere. They're not where we work, where we worship, where we live. We push those out. And even when we come to die now, we no longer die normally in our houses. We die in hospitals, nursing homes, or hospice care facilities. It's not something we see. It's not something we experience. And I'm not talking, you know, a right or wrong on this. I'm just showing culturally, like this is, we've kind of pushed death to the sidelines. We've tried to remove it from our thought processes. It's something out there. It's something other. It's something we can avoid if we take care of our bodies and so on and so forth. And so then when death does pop up, inevitably, as it will in our lives, we're at a loss a lot of times. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to process this. We get a terminal diagnosis and we don't know what to do with that. How am I to think about this? How am I to grieve through this? What's, what's right in my thinking? What's wrong in my thinking? Because we've so pushed death out that we never take the time to learn how to deal with it until, boom, something happens and we're in the funeral home. And we have no clue what to do, what to think, what to feel, how to process And so this morning as we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul is facing his own imminent death. And so from that, I want to take the time to do two things. One, just have a heart-to-heart about how we should think about death. Theologically, because it is inevitable. So how should we think about death? And then also... then turn specifically to Paul's words here and glean a couple of principles from him about how to face our own specific deaths. And so listen, I know this is heavy. I know no one woke up this morning and was like, man, I hope I go to church and he talks about dying, right? No one said that. And so while this may not be a super fun thing, I do pray it would be super helpful. Because this is real. This is authentic. This is life and death. And so I pray it would be helpful. And so how do we 
face. Death comes for all of us. How do we face it? First of all, we need to have just a basic understanding of death. And so first I want to give you just a bite-sized theology of death. And then we'll glean out these three principles from Paul. So number one in your notes, a bite-sized theology of death. To do this, this is where we're going to go to John 11. So if you have a Bible, John 11. If you don't, there's one around you, a black hardback one. We're going to be on page 897. You will be aided by following along. So grab that, make your way to John 11. Or if you're using the Bibles around you, page 897. And we'll pick it up in verse 17. This is the story of Lazarus. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village yet, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with, him, come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. All right, the, the Greek word there is eterexine, and it means angry, okay, agitated, indignant. He was mad at death. Why? Because letter A, death is not natural. Death is not natural. Okay, it's not. It's not supposed to be like this. This is not how God created the world. Human death was not in the very good beginning. And so while death may be inevitable in our lives, it is not part of God's very good created natural order. It is a chaotic and destructive force that entered into the world as a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. And since that time, death has been an ever-present enemy crouching at the gates. And so that's why verse 33, Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Because it's not supposed to be this way. It is not natural. God created us to live 
not die. We sin, so we die. Death is a consequence. It is a result of sin. And it comes for all of us. Now, you can work out and you can eat good like I was talking about. You can go for a run. You should. These are good things to do. Take care of your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But you're still going to die. I was reading a book this week and it, was, it started off by talking about Louis Zamperini and uh, the story of Unbroken and talking about how we love good survival stories. And we do. But truthfully, there is no survival story because Louis Zamperini still died. No one gets out of life alive. Death comes for us all. One person, one box, that's the way it goes for all of us. And it ticks Jesus off. Like as a pastor, I probably maybe see death more than another vocation. Definitely more than when I was a management trainee, right? Definitely involved with that a little bit more. And every time I encounter death and I see people grieving and I see people hurting and I see people in pain, I think to myself, I hate death. But look right at me. Jesus hates it more. And so he came and did something about it. He came to kill death. He came to be the death of death. And so just as death was not there in the beginning of all things, so death will not be around in the culmination of all things. Death has an expiration date. Death will one day experience its own death because of the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the bodily, physical, victorious resurrection of Jesus. All right? He is the resurrection and the life. And in that, death was defeated. And so on that very first Easter Sunday, when Jesus walked out of the grave, death was dealt a mortal blow. It was defeated. So that someday, 1 Corinthians 15, we can say, Death, where is thy sting? Where is your victory? And mock it. But until that day when Jesus returns and death goes extinct, it does still sting and it does still hurt. And Jesus knew that full well. Look at verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And I don't want you to miss the, the power in this statement. Jesus is on the verge of perhaps his most powerful display, his most powerful miracle that he is going to perform, his greatest miracle that he is going to do. And he knows he's about to do it. It's not going to catch him by surprise. He knows what he's about to do. Yet, he's not callous in doing it. Like, he knows it's coming. But he's not detached from the pain of those he loves. He doesn't scold Mary and Martha and everyone else for weeping. What does he do? 
he joins them. The reality of death and its effects on those he loves broke his heart. And so since death is not natural, that means, letter B, grief is appropriate. Grief is appropriate. In your recommended resources, there's a book called Remember Death, written by a friend of mine named Matt McCullough. He's a pastor at Trinity Church in downtown Nashville. Great guy, brilliant guy, PhD from Vanderbilt. And in that book, he writes this, Grief over death in all its many faces is the only honest, truthful response to a world that was not made to be this way. Grief tells the truth about the goodness of what God has given us. It's how we agree with Jesus about the offensiveness of death's challenge to everything that is good and right and beautiful. Grief is not unbelief in what God will do. That someday there won't be death anymore. And it also isn't ingratitude for what God has done. Rather, what grief in the face of death is, is simply honest. Even Christ-like. Because Jesus wept. And so friends, understand, it is right to grieve. It is right. Because death stings. Right now, it still stings. It won't always be that way. Death is defeated, but it's not yet extinct. And so now it burns. And so grieve, that is a truthful response to the brokenness of this world as we experience it. And so grieve. But 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And so yes, let's grieve, let's be honest about this life, but let's also be honest about Jesus. And so we grieve with hope. And that's letter C. Grieve with hope. Look back at verse 21 again. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that you'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Also, Messiah. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Mean the same thing. The Son of God who is coming into the world. And so that's why we can grieve with hope, because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited promised one, the anointed one of God. He is the Son of God, and He came into this world to save sinners from our sin and be the death of death. And so in the midst of your grief, as you're grieving for loved ones, hang on to that. Jesus has defeated death. He's conquered the grave. And so death is on the clock. Its time is almost up. And for those who have passed on, listen, they are in a better place. That's why Paul speaks of death even as gain in some way. 
But that's because of being with the Lord, not the dying. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is the last enemy. It is an enemy. It's not natural. It's not supposed to be this way. That's why Jesus is crying. That's why Jesus is ticked off. That's why Jesus went to the cross to defeat death and sin. And so, yes, one day every Christian will experience the joy of eternal life. But beforehand, unless Jesus returns, every Christian must first experience the grief of physical death. But friend, again, that grief is also mingled with hope because of verse 25 here. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's for Lazarus. He's dead. He's about to live. 26, and everyone who lives, this is for you, Martha and Mary, and you and I, and believes in me shall never die. And so understand, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have trusted by faith in what Jesus has done to rescue sinners from their sin. His perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his bodily resurrection. If you've trusted in him, if you are a Christian, unless Jesus returns, I mean, even if you're not a Christian, all of us, we're going to biologically die. Every single one of us. It's going to happen. Let's say sometimes when this pops up, I'm doing your funeral, you're coming to mine. One of those two things is going to happen. But as one writer put it, for the Christian biological death doesn't disturb the continuity of living personal existence for God's people in the slightest. There will never be one millisecond when you are out of saving fellowship with Christ. It's not going to happen. When Jesus promised, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, he meant it. There will not be a nanosecond between this life here and your life there. Like, there's not, Jesus will be with you always, even in death. And so believers have no reason to fear death, even though we hate it. Now, let me be honest for a second. At the risk of you thinking I'm not super spiritual or something like that. If I'm going to die today, I'm going to be anxious about a couple of things. And they're all sitting down here. What's going to happen to my wife? What's going to happen to my kids? How is this going to affect them? Things like that. I'm going to be ang- that's, that's natural because why? Because I love them. If I was callous towards that or whatever, you know, th- then I don't love them very much. So there's a natural anxiety to some level of those things, right? And that's okay and that's right. I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. I love my wife. I'm gonna, I want to make sure they're okay, right? Buy some life insurance, that might help a little bit. But the actual dying. Christians, you, you have no reason to fear that. Christ has conquered it. He has already gone through it. He has paved the way and He will be with us in the midst of it. In the moment we biologically die... our soul will instantaneously be with Christ. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. 
And so, yes, in the face of death, grieve. But grieve with hope. And I've only just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg as it relates to hope. Let me explain it full a little bit more. And this is letter D. This is why we can grieve with hope. Death is temporary. Death is temporary. Look back at John chapter 11 again. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? That if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Friends, this is the power of the one we worship. All things obey him. He has power over all things, even death. It has to obey him. And so when Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out in a crazy display of power Jesus calls this dead man who was rotting his blood had pooled his heart was not pumping all of that to start happening again synapses firing again all of this warmth coming back to his body all of this he calls this dead man to come back to life and walk out of the grave and I love what Augustine says about this moment Augustine said that Jesus had to say Lazarus' name because otherwise he would have emptied the entire graveyard. But here's the reality, folks. Someday he will. Someday he will. See, Lazarus is a preview of our resurrection. Jesus is coming back in power and glory, and this story is a window into that glory. Because death is a temporary deal. It will not always be around. And what death does to us in separating our bodies from our souls and separating believers from one another, that will be over with. There's coming a day when these things will end and that's when Jesus returns and ushers in Revelation 21, new heavens, new earth. And He'll resurrect our bodies So that we will no longer be absent from the body present with the Lord. We'll be present in our bodies present with the Lord. Full humanity restored. Humans are body and soul. Death breaks that. Jesus puts it back together. That's coming. And so putting those four pieces together that I just gave you. You get these two sentences. And this is your bite-sized theology of death to hang on to. Two sentences. Death is not natural, so grief is appropriate. But we grieve with hope because death is temporary. Death is not natural, so grief is appropriate. 
But we grieve with hope because death is temporary. Okay, it's on the clock. Like we said, we're not there yet. Okay, that's the big picture of death. But that's not here yet. The temporary nature is not here yet. So how do we face death in the here and now, particularly as it relates to us? How do we face our own death? Look at Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is a quintessential sermon where point one is really long and point two is a little bit shorter. Page 996 in the Bibles around you. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Angela read it for us a little bit earlier. But the way this breaks down, if you look at it, is it breaks down with, G, with, with, with Paul talking about present, past, and future. That's the way, verse 6, he's talking about present. Verse 7, he's talking about his past. Verse 8, he's talking about his future. And what's happening here is, I mean, this is his last letter. He is months away from dying. He, is, he knows it's going to happen. And the whole book has been... Timothy, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And for the first time, outside of his introduction, now he turns to himself. And so look at this present, past, future. Verse 6, present, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Present reality. Verse 7, looking back, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Verse 8, future now. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, connecting back to verse 1, will reward to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. And so with that present, past, future in mind, kind of pulling that gap down and gleaning for us some things we can kind of take from this, The first one, or letter A, under some practical principles here, letter A, don't live in denial. Don't live in denial. Like when Paul, when you look at what's going on, like there's no denial in his attitude, in his outlook. Paul sees the circumstances, he knows he's in a dungeon, he knows Nero's going to cut his head off, he knows all of that is coming, so he takes it at face value. He says, I'm a drink offering, I'm being poured out. Like the cup's almost empty. When the cup's empty, I'm dead. And it's happening, it's already happening. And folks, that's, the, like, that's all of us. All of us. If it's a cup, we're all being poured out. Our life energy, our life blood is being poured out and someday it will be empty. And so right now, we don't need to deny the reality of our mortality. That we are going to die. We need to not deny that. That's why I keep that skull in there. So every day I walk in there and I remember, I'm, that's me. That's what's coming. There's good things about that. There's bad things about that. But I have this life right now. Let me live it right now before that. And so we need to not deny the truth of our mortality. It's going to happen. But also, like in that crushing moment when you're in the doctor's office and they say six months. They give you six months. And we rightly grieve. Rightly. Death's an enemy. Let's grieve properly with hope, but not with a denial of reality. 
and fool ourselves. And you look at Paul here. He too has six months. Later on he's going to say, hey, come before winter because I'm probably going to be dead by then. He's got six months at best. And so he doesn't try to imagine things are better than they actually are. That's just self-delusion. And he doesn't try to convince himself he would absolutely be miraculously rescued. Because that's wishful thinking at best and presumption on the Lord's will at worst. And so notice, without discounting any potential future, God can do whatever he wants to do. So without discounting any potential future, Paul accepted the truth of his situation and he faced it with reality and he faced it with hope, knowing the truth about death that is not natural. So grief is appropriate, but we grieve with hope because death is temporary. And so folks, that's how we can face death. Again, we grieve and we're honest about our life, but we're also honest about Jesus and his resurrection and what he's promised for his people. He's overcome the grave, and so we can face it. That's letter A. Don't live in denial. Letter B. Live now in light of then. Live now in light of then. Like verse 7, Paul, looking back over the course of his life, and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I've always laughed at people. In my yearbook, when I, my, buddy, my college roommate and high school friend Dan's here today, and he'll know in our high school yearbooks, People would put that as like their quote for their senior year. And I was like, are, are you dying? Like, why? high school is not the fight. High school is not the race. High school is not the keeping of the faith. This is about death. But I think when Paul is writing this and he's looking back over these things, I mean, he's, he, he's glad about it. He knows God has sustained him. But the question I want to ask to you guys is like, what do you on your deathbed want to look back upon in your life? This is part of living with the end in mind. When you're on your deathbed and you look back, what do you want to say, see and what do you want to say? And so now, now live in light of then. Live now in light of then. I think that's what all these metaphors really call out to us. Like a soldier to fight in the moment has to have a view of the victory at the end. A runner to run and push hard in the middle of the race has to have a view of the reward that's going to come at the end for someone who's been given a trust to be faithful, right? To, and and to, to be faithful to that trust in the moment has to look ahead to what to the fact that he'll have to give an account for how he guarded the trust that was given. And so it's a view of the end that sustains us in the present. Okay, it's a view of the end that sustains us in the present. For example, I was hired this past winter to be a, a personal coach for a local runner in the area. My parents wanted me to help coach him, so I did. And I'm still working with him a little bit. And one of the things I'm constantly hammering on him is this exact principle. Live now, train now, eat now, do everything you need to do now in light of November. In light of next spring. Like if you want something then, like everybody wants to be a champion on race day, but the way you achieve that is beforehand. The way you achieve that is in the summertime, not on race day. It's too late then. 
And so it's the same thing for our lives, just a greater principle. What do you want to say on that day? Then you do that now. Live now in light of then. Live for what matters. And you're like, man, I've already blown it. Well, today's the first day of the rest of your life. So start running now. Start fighting now. Start keeping the faith now. So letter A, don't live in denial. Letter B, live now in light of then. And then finally, letter C, face death with hope and expectancy. Face death with hope and expectancy. Even as we grieve, even as we... But face it with hope. We grieve with hope. And so as we come to our death, if I'm coming to my death, I should face it with hope. There's grief in there. But hope and expectancy. Verse 8, Paul talks about how he's going to be given... the. Well, let's just read it. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so Paul has already been given the righteousness of Christ. That is salvation. We do not have righteousness of our own. We are all sinners. So the gospel is that Jesus took our sin. He dies for it on the cross, he pays for it, and he gives to us his righteousness. We don't have any, he gives us his, and that's, what, that's why we can stand holy and clean and blameless before God the Father. Not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did. He's given us his righteousness. So that's already happened for Paul. He's already been given Jesus' own righteousness at the moment he believed, but Paul is awaiting this crown of righteousness, this ultimate permanent state of perfection, of sinlessness. That will be heaven, sinlessness for us. And so Paul's really kind of talking of like a vindication here. That while Nero was about to declare Paul guilty and condemn him to die, Christ, the righteous judge, was about to declare him righteous forever. But this isn't just true of Paul. This is true of every single person, all those who have loved his appearing. That is, who love the fact that Jesus has come to rescue us. And so because of what Christ has done, like we didn't do anything to deserve that. It's something he's given us. And so we can't walk with swagger or boastfulness. We should walk in humility. But it also means we can walk and live and die with hope and expectancy. Coupling all of these things together. Hope because absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And expectancy because one day the sky will crack. And there will be a shout from the east that has a distinctly northern Galilean accent. And that's when death will die and life gets really fun. And I will have no need of that stupid skull. His death is over. Let's pray. Father, teach us truly to number our days. Your word says there, verse 12, that that 
gives us a heart of wisdom. That if we would be wise, we would recognize life is short, eternity is long, and we would live for what matters. And so, Father, help all of us. Help me. It's easy to step outside and pause and say these things, but help me in the moment to remember these things. In the moment when I focus on petty, little, insignificant things that I am not going to remember in a month, maybe a week, but I allow them to rob me of living for you or rob me of joy, rob me of the goodness of life that you've given. Help me to remember the truth of my own mortality. Because in an ironic way, focusing on death gives us joy in life because we remember the glory of what you've done for us. The gospel comes alive. That you have rescued us. That you've made a way for all people who would repent and believe to have eternal life, to be forgiven. And we love the aspects of that that are for this life because they are real and they are true. But life is short. And so when we keep death in view, we see the height of what you've done for us in Christ. And so, Father, fill us with that and get, help us to face death properly. Help us to grieve rightly and help us to trust And help us to live in light of that day. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.